And also an invitation to the kids, uh, sorry, I shouldn't use that word, the students in the room. Uh, Pastor's Challenge is still in operation. Um, Do your best to staple those together, collect them, and then turn them in. The last Sunday of of October is the seventh Sunday. All right. Let's pray, please. Our Heavenly Father, we are so, so grateful to see the testimony of those who have put their faith and trust in you for the salvation of their souls. We rejoice this morning with David and Julie. And so we ask that in their lives they would now grow like, grow like, I was going to say weeds, Lord, but the good kind. We pray that they would just be filled with the fruit of the Spirit as you've been working in their hearts already. May your Holy Spirit continue to perfect them and make them all that they are meant to be in Christ Jesus for the honor and glory of the Heavenly Father. And as we look into this text this morning and as we consider what it means to be faithful followers of you, help us to understand the, how, how this as a basic of the Christian life is a way of honoring and showing that we love you. And Father, I pray that you would just guide my lips and guard my heart, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was 1973, Pink Floyd released the hit song, Money, on their Dark Side of the Moon album. Just so you're wondering, I was born in 1978, but here are a few of the lyrics. It was still going strong in my early days, in high school days, riding on the school bus to school. But here here are some of the lyrics, Money, Get Away. You get a good job with more pay, and you're okay. Money. It's a gas. Grab that cash with both hands and make a stash. Now, you might find it interesting to note that that, those, you know, that song is actually the bumper music on the Dave Ramsey show. Maybe you will recognize that. Many of us have benefited from the Dave Ramsey uh, Financial Peace University. But why would we be talking about money in a back-to-basics series. Is this even related to Christianity? Well, if we believe that Jesus Christ is not only our Savior, but also our Lord, then we ought to joyfully hear what the Bible has to say about something that commands so much of our time and so much of our focus. As is evident in that song, money, it's something that consumes a lot of our time, our thinking, and our desiring. George Bernard Shaw, I think it was George Bernard Shaw, where Mark Twain once said that the lack of money is the root of all evil. Maybe you've heard it said that money is the root of all evil. But neither money nor the lack of money is the root of all evil. It is the love of money that is the root of all evil. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. 
So to talk about money in a back-to-basics series is a very appropriate thing because money can be an object of worship or a means to worship. Jesus interacted with a very wealthy person in his ministry who asked him what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. So Jesus quizzed the man and said, you know, have you been obedient to the commandments that you learned when you were a boy? Have you honored your mother and your father? Have you not committed adultery? Have you um, not been stealing? And the man gave recognition to his obedience from his youth. And then Jesus asked him a very pointed question and The implication of that question was whether or not he would value God and implicitly Jesus more than his wealth. How did Jesus do this? Jesus asked him to do a very hard thing. He said to this wealthy man, he said, sell all that you have and then you will have treasure in heaven. Now if you think about that, if you're truly thinking about that, you might be asking yourself, since when has God ever required us to give everything away in order to be born again, to inherit eternal life? And you should ask that question, because that's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was demonstrating how well he knew the human heart, and particularly this wealthy young man. God was asking him, in the person of Jesus, whether or not he would value him more than his money. He was asking him to lay down a counterfeit God to demonstrate who he loved more. And so this morning I want us to consider from this text in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 that giving is a way of showing that we love God more. Now, Paul is teaching the Corinthian church about giving. And in this passage, Paul teaches that giving is a way of showing that we we love God more. And there are principles in this text that we can gain as we lay to heart the necessity, consider the, the manner in which we give to God. So, As we get ready to think about this, I think on the offing, it's important for us to realize that that there are three ways giving advances the Great Commission. And we won't turn to all of these, but if you have your bulletin insert, they're there for you, and you can look them up at another time. But God has commanded that his people give to the support of Christian teachers. Galatians 6, 6 says, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. There is also the need to support the advance of missionaries as well. 2 Corinthians 11.9 says, And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. They were outside brothers and sisters in Christ who were providing funds for mission activity to occur. Third, Care for those in need. Ephesians 4, verse 28. This is implicit in this command from Paul. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. There is always a need for generosity on the heart of a Christian. Now, this is not going to be a full exposition on the theme of giving, 
And there's so much that I could say on it that I can't give to it this morning. When I started this series, I said each one of these could be seven weeks. But in the end, I'll give maybe some practical suggestions on how to begin systematically giving if that's not something that has occurred to you or, or something that you're not used to. But I want us to see what Paul is saying here principle-wise. In 2 Corinthians, I hope you were able to find it, chapter 9, verse 6 through 15. Let's read it, and we're going to look at three principles related to giving here this morning. In verse 6, we see, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will, also, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the need of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. First thing that I believe that we should see from this text is that that God loves a cheerful giver. I mean, that's the very words that are in the text, aren't they? I didn't work too hard on that one. God loves a cheerful giver. But I want us to see the argument of Paul, and I've got to invert these two verses in my explanation. I'm going to talk about verse 7 first and then refer to verse 6 after. But I want us to see here that Paul is... Talking about the importance of giving, yes, cheerfully, but also purposely. Give purposely is what he's asking us to do, the Corinthian church particularly, by extension us here today, in verse 7. Do you notice, it says, everyone must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. There is a purposeful decision about how you will participate in this act of giving. It's very purposeful. Now, when we read something like this, we might be tempted to think that tithing was not, you know, we might be tempted to think that tithing was only a mosaic command. In fact, this passage, if, if we're not careful, and if I'm not careful, I could misrepresent what this passage is primarily talking about. And in the context of giving, Paul is talking about giving above and beyond to the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem had undergone a severe famine 
And the church in Corinth was thinking of ways in which they could bless the mother church that brought them the gospel. And so it's important for us to understand that Paul is connecting uh, an, an additional blessing here as well in the giving process. So Paul is challenging the Corinthian church to give according to what uh, they feel led to, giving outside of their normal practice within their own congregation. But even then, they're supposed to do it systematically and also purposefully. Now, you may have heard that it was said before that the tithe was simply part of the Old Testament law. But actually, that is not so. It is clear that Adam and Eve knew they had a responsibility to give back to God a portion what he, of what they had been blessed with. You can read about this of how they instructed their sons in, in Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel were instructed to give of the firstborn and of the firstfruits of all that they had been received from the Lord. It had been established as a practice even before the Mosaic law had come into being. And it was a clear demonstration of worship. In fact, Abraham gave tithes to the representative of God in the land of Canaan, Melchizedek, in Genesis chapter 14. Genesis 28, Jacob himself knew as he, as he was leaving the land that the appropriate response for God's favor and protection was to give a full tithe to God when he came back. In fact, a full tithe there, and that word was the idea of a frequency and of multiplied actions. It was something that he was going to keep doing for the rest of his life. In Genesis 26, verse 5, uh, God says that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge and my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Wait a second. Was this before or after the Mosaic Law? This was before. It's an identical type of language, actually, that leads us to understand that God has always expected his believers to respond in, in gratitude and to give of the first fruits that all have God has given to them. And really, giving to God is a way of worship. Now, there is a sense in which the Old Testament laws are not in force, and that's a correct understanding. It's important for us to see that. I mean, you can actually go to Deuteronomy chapter 12, and you can go to Deuteronomy 14, and you can see a delineation of three offerings that were expected of the Jewish people on an annual basis. They were expected to give in support of the temple and the priests. They were expected in the seasons of celebration to give as well, and also to give to the Levites. And then further, in that context, it would be a distribution to those who are poor and needy in the land. Now, scholars have looked at these details and have found that the combined giving under the law was not just 10%, it was actually 23.3%. Now, it's important for us to see that. And it's also important for us to see that Christ in his own teaching supported the tithe. In Matthew 23, verse 23, he condemned the Pharisees for their tedious commitment to the tithe, but yet their neglect of the weightier matters of the law. Things like 
justice, mercy, and faithfulness. This is what Jesus said. Um, These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So Jesus is saying, look, this was a part of what you ought to have done, but you should not have neglected this other thing. He's not saying you can forget the other thing and just focus on this. He's saying you ought, you must. It's what you should do to demonstrate your love for God. And so it's important for us to see that, yes, the external requirements are done away with in Christ, but not the moral aspect of giving to God as a form of worship. In other words, the basic tie, the support of the work of the ministry remains even while some of the ceremonial aspects fade away. Yet the tithe is merely a minimum. Christians are always expected to give to the poor, always expected to give to missions. And the basic tithe ought to be given in consideration of your local congregation to the work and the mission of this congregation. Let's turn to Malachi 3 for a minute. Keep your finger here. We're going to come back. And Malachi, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Matthew is the, if you can find Matthew, just go back a few pages and you'll be in Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 to 12. It's important for us to see here that God doesn't care so much about the money as much as he cares about the heart and the implication that's involved with that of neglecting these things. In Malachi 3, verse 6, it says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So God keeps his promises. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, have not have kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But, but you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are, not, for you are robbing me and the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fall to bear, fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This passage is teaching us that, that God treats the lack of tithing as something that is detestable. God challenges people to demonstrate a love for God that says, I will give to him first. I will trust him to supply on the backside what I give with an open hand. God will supply all your need as you give. Put him to the test. If you don't believe it, test him. He'll do it. So let's go back to 2 Corinthians 
I hope you had your finger there. We'll just flip back over. We looked at verse 7 first, but we're thinking a little bit more principalitized in verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Paul in this verse is, is talking about, in principle form, what he states more explicitly in verse 7, that you know, you're to give generously. You're to give generously. He's giving us a principle based upon the, the generosity that exists in the heart of God himself. He uses an example of how God has ordered the creation that when you plant a seed, it brings forth maybe a hundred seeds. God has designed the process to replenish. And so this farming proverb tells us that if we plant sparingly, then we're going to reap sparingly. God has ordered it to happen this way. Now, there's certainly a numerical principle that's in this, but I want to see what Paul is here also emphasizing that is that giving is actually a part of the character of God, and if God's character is like that, then he's going to love seeing it in his creation and in his people. God loves a cheerful giver, not a clenched fist giver. Now, there is an obedience, I think, that we need to be careful of which in the end is a disobedience. God is interested in the heart, but beware of saying, well, since my heart, then I'm not. Be careful of that. Yes, God is interested in the heart. As a young boy, my mother shared with me the gospel. After each time, she had to discipline me for my hard heart. And she would say this from the, from the lips of Solomon, excuse me, the lips of, Saul, of Samuel to the King Saul. 1 Samuel 15, 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Does that mean that we just ignore the sacrifices? No. God is saying, I like the giving that is behind the sacrifice and how critical that is as a part of our worship. Yes, God wants obedience and not for me to do it my own way, but even when we do what God says, we can obey the letter of the law, but if the Spirit is there, it's disobedience. If it's not there, it's disobedience as well. Psalm 51, verse 16 to 17 says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And in the end, God's after your heart. And that's why he says he loves a cheerful giver. Randy Alcorn Maybe you've heard of Randy as a published as an author, and he has a book called The Treasure Principle. Listen to what he says. God wants your heart. He isn't looking for just donors for his kingdom. Those who stand outside the cause and dispassionately consider acts of philanthropy. He's looking for disciples immersed in the causes that they give to. 
He wants people so filled with a vision for eternity they wouldn't dream of not investing their money, their time, and prayers where they will matter the most. God wants our heart. Well, some might say, well, I can't give cheerfully, then I shouldn't give. Well, no. This is not an either-or. We must give in a way that is both cheerful and generous. It's not an either-or, it's, it's and. It's and. God loves a cheerful giver. Then we don't have to fear, because if we're doing what God loves, he will more than meet our need. So verses 8 to 11, the second principle that I want us to see here is that, that if we are giving cheerfully, God is the one who supplies your generosity. He's the one who supplies it. In verse 8, he says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you. God is able. Do you know that song? He's able. How many know that song, He's Able? I used to sing that as a kid. Sing it with me, if you know it. He's able, He's able, I know He's able. I know my Lord is able to carry me through. He healed the brokenhearted and he set the captive free. He made the lame to walk again and he caused the blind to see. He's able, he's able. I know he's able. I know my Lord is able to carry me through. Amen. God is able to supply your generosity. I mean, if you have the desire to give, do you know who put that desire there? God did. And he's able. God will make sure that you can still cover your responsibilities. God supplies your capacity to give. Notice the the repetition in that verse, verse 9. Or verse 8. In verse 8 he says, For even, excuse me, verse 8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound you, so that you might have all sufficiency in all things and at all times, so that you might abound in, oh, come on, Paul, why didn't you say all? (laughs) Every good work. God wants to supply all for you. I remember when my heart was burdened as a college student to really put this matter of putting my first fruits on the altar. As a college student, the debts are looming in front of your face. And the temptation to not give the first fruits is right there. And I will have to say, I didn't give like I ought to have given. And I saw God touch my car in just the right way so that the expenses that I thought I would not have were there. But 
But then when I decided, yes, I am going to give, and I started giving, I saw God preserve my vehicles. I saw God work in wonderful ways to supply our need. A testimony of God's blessing. He, we have never lacked in all my life. God has supplied. I've seen the burden to, to give at a certain point to a, a missionary who was coming and writing out a check thinking, I don't know where this is going to come from. And then I got a rebate check in the mail. Well, I forgot about it. Or there's uh, someone kindly sent us money for my birthday. God provides. He supplies the generosity that your heart wants to do. And I've seen this many times. And we could probably turn and open and see, see this from everyone else as well. God is able. Verse 9, God works through you. God works through you so that we're able to abound in every good work. At the end there of verse 8, that's kind of the lead into verse 9. God wants to create work through you. And in verse 9, God's intention is to supply the works that you desire. The Holy Spirit gives you the affection and the heart to give, but know for certain that God's intention to work through you is to do good to other people. So in verse 9, Paul quotes from Psalm 112, which we read in our earlier part of our service. A righteous person in Psalm 112 is a person who fears God and is also then enabled by God to give to those who are in need. So in the earlier part of Psalm 112, particularly verse 3, we read these words that wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever. And so he has the capacity to give. That was planted by God. And so we need to give recognition that if God gives us the resources and the desire to give, then you will be an instrument in the hands of God for other people. That's encouraging. It's fun to be able to see how you've supplied for another person in ways that they weren't expecting, but there was real need. What a blessing that is. But know also that God, in his supply of your generosity, he's, he's not only able, he's also, you know, not only doing these works, he's also growing you. In verse 10 to 12, the key word which interprets um, these verses of 10 to 12 is the word righteousness. He's supplying your righteousness. God's not only interested in doing a good work for others through you, he's also interested in growing you. So God sows the seed. He, he supplies the growth so that the bread is able to be made. And in the same way, God is multiplying your generosity, and so there's a harvest of your righteousness. That's the supply of the Holy Spirit in your heart, creating generosity, and it produces the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so by your purposeful, generous, giving cheerfully, the fruit of the Spirit is made evident. And God is pleased. He loves a cheerful giver. 
And it reflects himself. The last principle that I think that we will be helped by seeing this morning, hopefully, is that God gave a gift surpassing all gifts. Verse 13 to 15, Paul's emphasis is on the root of this generosity. Where does this generosity in your heart come from in the first place? It comes out of the greatest gift. Your willing submission to give, quote, comes, in verse 13, look at verse 13, it comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. So we need to think carefully about what Christ, what Paul is saying. He's saying that a willingness to give affirms the faith you say that you have. Think about this for a moment. If you're unwilling to give, then what does that communicate? If you're unwilling and grudging in your giving, can you honestly say that you follow Christ? Did you know that giving in America by Christians right now is on an average of 2 to 3%? 2 to 3%. Now, I want you to know, and I don't say this for any other reason, because people might assume that because I give of my time that I don't necessarily give. But I want you to know that your pastor puts his money where his mouth is. I also give, not just my time. I also give him my treasure. Now our church family has historically made giving to missions a significant part of our church budget. And our capacity to continue to be giving to missions is dependent upon God's people being generous. Through the years, as People have been generous, and we've been thankful for that. We need God's people to give to their local congregation first so that we can maintain those commitments. The church is to gather the tithes from God's people to care for the local mission and then give to foreign missions. Yes, God moves in people's hearts individually to give as they see fit, But remember, our capacity to be generous as a congregation exists because you are generous. We are not funded by an outside denomination. We are a local congregation. And our capacity to do so depends upon the generosity of God's people. (coughs) Giving in America by Christians is extremely low. Extremely low. And I believe that this is an indicator of the spiritual condition in America. It doesn't need to be this way. Why doesn't it need to be this way? Because it's a matter of faith. Do we believe that we follow the most generous person in history? Jesus spent his life serving and giving to others and his life life ended with the greatest gift of all. And on the cross, he gave sacrificially, he gave generously, he gave everything. 
What Jesus did on the cross should make us eternally grateful people and our gratitude should lead us to give outrageously, generously. Paul concludes his thought here at the end in verse 15. He says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. A little girl became restless as the preacher's sermon dragged on and on. Finally, she leaned over to her mother and whispered, Mommy, if we give him the money now, will he let us go? (laughs) We're not going to pass the plate. But we need to know that giving is a way of showing that we love God more. God wants your heart. He who made everything owns everything anyway. And he knows, though, that if you give what you value most, your heart is going to follow with it. And as a compass needle points north, your heart will follow your treasure. So if you put your treasure into the kingdom of God, your heart will follow. Money leads and then heart follows. I don't know, pick a percent. Work towards 10. Start with something that's startable. And then maybe each month add a little bit more to that. And see what blessings God will pour out in your life. How many of you know I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold? If you know it, sing with me. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands. The king of a vast domain and beheld in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Drew, maybe that's the way to finish the service this morning for time's sake. Do you wish you cared more about eternal things? Then reallocate some of your money and God will give you the desires of your heart. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to present your word this morning. We ask, Father, that you would move in our hearts, that you'd be honored uh, by the sacrifices of the heart. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.